Good morning. Our scripture this morning comes from the book of Matthew, chapter 21. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks and sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, Grace. Have you ever been to a really big parade? There's a parade every Christmas in Seal Beach. It starts here and it ends down there, down at the end of the main street. It's a great parade, but I wouldn't call it a really big parade. I'm standing on the corner of Livingston and East 2nd Street in Long Beach. This is where every year the Belmont Shore Christmas Parade starts. It goes all the way down to Bay Shore and then loops all the way back to end right here. It seems bigger than the Seal Beach Christmas Parade. I think it's a pretty big parade, but I wouldn't call it a really big parade. I'm on the corner of Orange Grove and Colorado Boulevard out in Pasadena, just up the street from where the Rose Parade starts each year. This is Colorado Boulevard. The Seal Beach Christmas Parade, the Belmont Shore Christmas Parade, they're great, but the Rose Parade is a really big parade. It fills Colorado Boulevard. Coming down this street and then it rounds the corner and turns left, going north on Sierra Madre. And imagine that you're sitting up here on Sierra Madre and you see this parade coming at you. You might not know how big it is. You'd have to go down to the intersection and peer down Colorado Boulevard to see how far back the parade goes. Good morning, Grace. I really enjoyed making that video, getting out of the house, uh, driving to Pasadena. I love to take a drive. It was just really fun. It was probably good for my soul. I think it was probably good for my family to have me gone for a little bit too. What I really hoped when I was making that is not just that I'd improve my iMovie skills or figure out that filming things in landscape is better than portrait, but that we would have a visual to help us better understand the story of Jesus during Holy Week. When we come into the story of Jesus as he enters Jerusalem, 
on what we now refer to as Palm Sunday, it's like we're standing a little ways up the road on Sierra Madre. We see just a small part of the whole parade as it rounds the corner and comes toward us. But what's come before is the story of God as we find it in the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament. And if we're going to understand Palm Sunday or any other part of this week, Holy Week, then we must go to the intersection and peer down Colorado Boulevard to see how far back this story goes. Bible scholar N.T. Wright helps us to understand the whole story, the whole parade, we could say, when he says, In the Old Testament, we find the story which speaks about a God who made the world and who loved the world so much that when his human creatures rebelled, he called a special people to help him set the world right again. And when this special people too rebelled, he didn't abandon the plan but stuck with it and with them and promised that he would be with them, with them in person to see the thing through, to take the weight of that rebellion and its consequences onto himself so that he could set his people right and so that he could set the world right. Friends, Jesus, he's proof that God didn't abandon his plan, that God is with his people in person to see the thing through, to set the world right. And this plan of God's comes into sharp focus during the final week of Jesus' life, the most important week of his ministry, Holy Week. And today is Palm Sunday, the first day of this week. It's called Palm Sunday because when Jesus enters Jerusalem, the crowd, John's Gospel tells us, they picked up palm branches and waved them at him as they welcomed him. This practice of waving palm branches represented victory over one's enemies. When people saw Jesus coming to Jerusalem, they thought, finally, our king is here right now. He's here and he's going to crush our enemies. He's going to restore us to our rightful place in our own land. Shouts of Hosanna, which mean save now. They filled the air. Here comes the king. That's what they thought. Were they right? Yes. Did he meet their expectations? Not even close. They'd never seen a king act like him. And later in the week, they couldn't imagine that a king would die like him. Here was the king God sent, the one the scriptures pointed to and said, that's him. From the start of the parade, all the way down Colorado Boulevard, rounding the corner onto Sierra Madre, one unified parade, one unified story. All the proof you'd need if you had eyes to see that Jesus is the king. Imagine you're there in Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. You make your way through the crowd. You get right up next to Jesus and you say, Hey Jesus, are you the king? Jesus says, Yes, I am. I am the king. And in Matthew 21, verses 1 to 17, we have four reasons to believe him. Four things that prove Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah, Israel's true king. First, he says, I'm the king. Look at my ride. When they drew near to Jerusalem, verse 1 says, Jesus sent two disciples to get him a ride, a donkey. And we might ask what sort of king would ride a donkey. 
Maybe a stallion or a chariot with a couple strong horses pulling, but a donkey? This might not be Caesar's ride, but it is the Messiah's ride. And the Jews of the day would have known that. Matthew tells us in verses 4 and 5, you can look there in your Bible. Verses 4 and 5, he says, This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. And he doesn't tell us there who, but he's talking about the prophet Zechariah. And in Zechariah 9.9, a passage about Israel's Messiah, we read these words. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey. So what people on this first Palm Sunday were seeing Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, it's the fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy hundreds of years before. The parade, we could say, didn't just start around the corner of that intersection. It stretches back hundreds, even thousands of years before. And what was predicted then in the earlier chapters of the story is happening right now. The Messiah, the king, the one predicted by Zechariah is the same king who rides into Jerusalem on a donkey on Palm Sunday. The Jews see him on his donkey. They react accordingly. Shouts of joy, celebration. For now anyway. I'm the king. Look at my ride. That's his first point. Next he says, I'm the king. Look at my house. Verse 12, and Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. You might remember when Jesus overturned the money tables in John 2. Well, this would seem to be a repeat performance. Probably on Monday or Tuesday of this week. That's when he does this. He goes to the temple, the most public place in all of Jerusalem. He sees the mess that they've persisted in. Again, he cleans house. He flips over tables. He kicks over chairs. He drives the money changers out of God's house. The temple is supposed to be a place of prayer and worship to God. A place where all people, Jews and Gentiles, could come and offer up sacrifices to God. But these merchants, they were hindering worship, not helping it. They were taking advantage of poor pilgrims by overcharging them. They made God's house what it was never intended to be. Jesus, he, he's tough here, isn't he? But his manliness is not the point. It's what his actions set up. Verse 13. By the way, this is from Isaiah chapter 56 verse 7. Verse 13, he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer but you make it a den of robbers. The passage from Isaiah is about the coming kingdom and the king who will bring deliverance. And Jesus is very clearly saying, that's me. I'm the king. Look at my house. Nice and clean. Just the way it's supposed to be. I'm the king. Look at my ride. Second, he says, I'm the king. Look at my house. Next, he says, I'm the king. Look at my works. Now we typically tidy up the house before guests arrive, don't we? And in the newly cleansed temple, Jesus says, come on in. Verse 14. 
And here's who came. The blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. Just a minute ago, he's flipping tables. He's screaming about God's zeal. All eyes are on Jesus. What's he going to do next? He does what he did throughout his ministry. He opened blind eyes and he healed the lame. Some people are seeing for the very first time at the temple that day. Others are now able to run or, or skip. Just getting up off the ground and walking would be a, a miracle for them. Some are now able to work instead of having to beg. Think about how wonderful this would be. How different your life would be because of Jesus. And isn't it incredible that Jesus heals here? He's about to die. He's going to the cross. Not many days from now. And he's still focused on the needs of others. He's not thinking about himself. Jesus heals because he loves people. And isn't that why he came? To show God's love to people. He doesn't just heal to gain a following and then he stops after he gets critical mass. No, he heals because he loves people. And this healing ministry, like everything else we see in this chapter, it points to Jesus being Israel's long-awaited Messiah. His healing ministry says very clearly, again, I'm the king. When the king comes, you'll know it, Israel. Because he will do certain kinds of things. That's what their scripture said to them. Isaiah 35 kinds of things. Isaiah 35, 4 to 6. Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened. The ears of the deaf, deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer. And the tongue of the mute sing for joy. His works speak for themselves. They are works of the Messiah. So to review we have his ride. We have his house. We have his works. They all point to him. His true identity. He is the king. And then we have this fourth and final proof. He says I'm the king. Would you listen to that? Verse 9 tells us that when Jesus came into Jerusalem, the crowds are shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And then in verse 15, we read that the children are crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David. The religious leaders of the day, they're not happy about this. Why? Well, in addition to recently costing them some money, his little stunt at the temple, you know they were getting money off that. That's gone. In addition to that, he's called them names throughout his ministry. Whitewashed tombs, children of the devil. That's not going to make you too happy with Jesus. Jesus, adding to that, now is allowing and not rebuking the children when they call him the son of David. Hosanna to the son of David. And I just imagine these religious hypocrites so mad. That's a title for the Messiah, Jesus. And you're just letting the crowds and the children, Jesus, think of these young, impressionable children. You're okay with them saying this about you? Friends, he's more than okay with it. He enjoys what he's hearing. He enjoys it when people give praise to God. These leaders are wanting Jesus to stop this blasphemy. And he's saying louder. Louder. I love this. And if they weren't mad enough yet, he puts the leaders over the edge with what he says next. Look at verse 16. 
They asked, do you hear what they're saying? To which Jesus replies, have you never read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babes you have prepared praise? What Jesus says is from Psalm 8, where God's majestic name is praised. We read there, by babes and infants. Children. Have you never read this psalm, Jesus asked them? Psalm 8? Of course they had. That was the problem. They understood what Jesus was saying about himself. The connection between Jesus and Yahweh, Israel's God. It, that had already been made when the crowd cries out in verse 9, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. There that word of praise is from Psalm 118. It was sung by the Jews on their way up to Jerusalem each year for Passover. And do you know what Psalm 118 celebrates? The return of Israel's king from victory in battle. And now it's being applied to Jesus as he comes into Jerusalem. So with Psalm 118, the crowds are saying, you're the king, Jesus. With Psalm 8, Jesus is agreeing with them and saying, it's true, I am the king. When the children cry out, Hosanna to the son of David, instead of shutting them up, Jesus says, let them talk, let them sing, let them get louder. Again, his point is very clear. Just like the babes and infants lifted their praise to God then, the children of this generation, the little ones now, are doing the same thing. They're lifting their praise to God now. When? When they sing about me. That's the beautiful sound you hate, he says to the religious leaders. What is Jesus saying here? That to give praise to him is to praise God. That he is equal with God. That he and God are on the same side. That they're united. And so, if you're opposing me, Jesus says, guess what? That's right. You're opposing him. You're on the wrong side of God. You, Israel's leaders, the ones who claim to know God, to speak for God, to minister in God's name, you don't. They were picking up what Jesus was putting down. How do we know? Because Palm Sunday is followed by Good Friday. Has anyone's approval rating ever dropped so quickly? Hosanna in the highest on Sunday. Crucify him on Friday. Jesus is king. Whether anyone believed it or not, he is the king. He himself gives four compelling proofs. Do they convince you? Maybe you're wondering if these proofs were so compelling and they're all found in the Hebrew Scriptures. If the Jews of the day had all the evidence they needed to look at Jesus and look at their Bibles and make the connections. If it's abundantly clear, and it is, that Jesus is king, then how did so many miss him? Why was he lifted up on a cross instead of bowed down to as king? I mean, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to see that Jesus is Israel's king. No, it doesn't take a rocket scientist. It takes a new heart. People, all people, including you and me, in our natural sin-affected state, 
We don't want to see Jesus as king. We don't want to acknowledge that he is the rightful ruler of our lives. We don't want to submit our will to somebody else, to anybody else, even to him. We want to be our own king. You want to be your own queen. We want to build our own kingdoms. We want our wills to be done. We want to rule ourselves. And we see where that gets us, don't we people? Nowhere good and fast. It's so much better to have Jesus ruling over us. To have King Jesus be our king. God's plan for this world is and has always been a good plan. It's bigger, it's more beautiful than we could ever imagine, and it's open to everyone. The invitation is open to all, but it's not automatic. You don't get to participate in God's work through being born. You don't get to enjoy all God has for you because you're an American. You don't get to enter God's kingdom simply because you've heard this message or watched this service in someone's home. So then how do you get to participate, to enjoy, to enter? How do you benefit from everything Jesus came to bring? How do you receive what Jesus offers you today? You surrender. Pastor John Piper says this, the message of Palm Sunday is that the king has come to his rebel subjects and offered peace terms while the time lasts. The terms of peace are simple. Lay down your arms, especially the weapons of self-righteousness and self-sufficiency. Admit your defeat. Accept your full and free pardon. Total amnesty. And swear your allegiance to the new king in your life. Have you done that? Have you laid down your arms, especially your self-righteousness and self-sufficiency? Have you admitted your defeat and accepted God's full and free pardon? Have you sworn allegiance to the King, to King Jesus? These are great questions to ask ourselves on a day like today, on Palm Sunday. Jesus King Jesus, he's a good king. He's a kind king. He's a benevolent and sympathetic king. And he offers himself to us today. To you. Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey. What will you do with him today? Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you have not abandoned your plan. You've stuck with it. You've stuck with us. Even after all the mess we've made, you continue to love us and care for us, to rule over us. You're often ungrateful subjects. We thank you, God. Thank you for sending Jesus to be our King I pray for all who have believed in him and are saved and are ruled by him that they would submit more and more of their lives, their will, their world to him each and every day. And I pray for all who have yet to believe in him that God you would commandeer 
their hearts this morning, even as they hear this word. Be Lord over them, Jesus, we pray. Amen.